All right. Hello and good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to Out Front, the show where we talk about intelligence, security, creating a first world zone in a third world country, and how to win at low intensity conflict, or at least not lose. I'm your host, Mike Shelby. We're going to start off today, actually dedicate the entire show talking about this. This is, I think, a very important concept. There's a particular account on Twitter. It's Lafayette Lee. His handle is at partisan underscore O. And Dustin, if you have, by any chance, if you have that first image lined up for us, please. All right. Excuse me. The, I guess the second image. We'll talk about, we'll talk about the new nationalism later in the show. It's a part of this whole thing. All right. This is Lafayette Lee. By the way, he gave me permission to share this and, and talk about it. His account is unlocked now, as a matter of fact. So if you go on, go, if you're on Twitter, heck, even if you're not on Twitter, I think you should be following at partisan underscore. O. it's one of the best accounts on Twitter, in my opinion. He's, he says a lot of deeply insightful things. All right. Uh, here it is. Inflation, shortages, violent crime, open border, rolling blackouts. We are drowning in chaos. Whoever convinces the country that they can restore order will win the enduring loyalty of millions. This isn't hard. And what I want to talk, there's two things that I have response to this. I'll read through the whole tweet thread here in just a minute. There are two things that absolutely have to be understood. And that is number one, how the structural fault lines in America, one in particular is breaking down. I think this is the structural fault line, and that is old America versus new America. That's the first thing we're going to talk about. And then the second thing we're going to talk about is what happened in Afghanistan, because the Taliban did exactly this. This is how the Taliban came to power in the mid-1990s, and the Pashtuns lined up behind them, and they supported it. And I'll tell you why that is, but it has to do with this tweet right here, which is a fundamental truth in, in the United States today. All right, let's hit this next tweet. The message from the White House and its broad, excuse me, and its brain dead vanguard of Weedlers is clear. The endless problems plaguing this country aren't real. And even if they are, they're likely the consequence of some moral failing on your part. He continues the farcical sermons, excuse me, the, the, uh, I guess this is Pharisees, the Pharisees, uh, the sermons and uh, and faculty lounge gobbledygook have served Democrats so well in times of plenty are nearly useless, or that have served Democrats so well in times of plenty are nearly useless in these times of want. In fact, such tactics are kindling a burning resentment in the hearts of American, in the hearts of the American electorate. But true to form, he continues, Republicans can't seem to break free of the Stockholm syndrome that has afflicted them for decades. So used to uh, so used to bowing and scraping and pleading for mercy, they hug their manacles and store their chains. They hug their manacles and stare at the floor, even as the prison door open prison door opens wide. Again, this isn't hard, he says. Again, this is not hard. Whoever convinces the public they can restore order will win. But make no mistake, as the country's problems become more existential, Americans won't hesitate to anoint a champion far outside the ranks of bitter Democrats and feckless Republicans. I first heard of the, okay, this is, that's his tweet thread, which is a good one. By now, everyone should be familiar with this concept of an American Caesar. I don't know if he's the first person who came up with it, but the stakes by Michael Anton was the first time I'd ever read that in a book. He, I think it's a whole chapter 
or maybe a good part of a, a chapter dedicated to this concept of an American Caesar, a leader who may exist outside the ranks of bitter Democrats and feckless Republicans, as Lafayette Lee says, but a leader who will promise order, come into sweeping election, uh, maybe even a, a landslide election if we still have quote-unquote free and fair elections, and do what is necessary to restore order. I don't think it's going to be pretty. It's not going to happen without a lot of backlash and resistance and honestly, probably some international support to an, uh, the resistance in America. Yesterday, on, on yesterday's show, I, I talked about, okay, I'm not promoting this and I'm not encouraging it or I'm not conspiring or, or plotting. But on yesterday's show, I talked about a right-wing insurgency or a right-wing takeover in this country. And again, I'm just looking at this from a purely academic perspective. A right-wing insurgency, if one were to happen, an attempt to overthrow the government, if, if that American Caesar cannot be elected. And again, maybe some people are going to think this is just prepper fiction, and it may be, but I'm just thinking through for the sake of an argument here, for the sake of thinking through it. A right-wing insurgency would have to, I think, must have anti-corruption as a core part of its messaging because it resonates. The message of anti-globalism, America first, let's take care of Americans. Someone said the other day, high gas prices, inflation, wildfires, uh, oil refineries going down, food production going down, lots of domestic failures, and we're sending another billion dollars to Ukraine. In, in what clown world does this guy not just immediately get ejected from office? Our clown world is where? I think the message of this right-wing effort would be to manage American decline, to stop the hemorrhaging until society can be turned around. And I think that's a strong message. There would have to be credibility behind this message. So someone, an American Caesar, or maybe a group of people who have an unassailable record maybe of public service or military service some or some other form of good works, or at least the perception of good works, and a feasible proposal and a way forward. And I think this is a strong strategic message that in a period of obvious collapse and decline, it's going to garner at least 15 to 25% or more of the, pop, of the populace. And I come back to this 15 to 25% in terms of insurgency because this is what Major General uh, Griffith said. He he studied he studied insurgency and he found that once once a movement had fifteen to twenty five percent of the populace, so you know roughly uh, one and a half out of ten to well, one out of four supporting the movement, it's very very difficult to defeat. It poses a very large challenge to defeat. So really, when I'm looking at any kind of low intensity conflict, that's kind of the hallmark I'm looking at, you know, looking at Portland or some other places. Does, does that area, do these revolutionary or radical groups have 15 to 25% support of the populace? If they do, that group is very strongly seated, I think. So that's why I keep coming back to this 15 to 25%. There are a lot of considerations here that I think probably makes a right wing revolution a less likely option. 
but it's not impossible. And a lot of this is oversimplified. And by the way, I'll, I'll get to your, your comments and questions in the chat here uh, later at the end of the show. There are a lot of people who are dependent on the system. And I think those, a lot of the people who are dependent on the system might actually agree with a strong message of anti-corruption. This concept of this is a new start. It's a, a refounding. And ultimately, what these people need to believe is that a is that this person could not get elected through our corrupt and unfair election process. Because this is entirely the point. The moment when 30, 30 to 50 percent of the country believes or just deep down they know that their guy can no longer get elected because of these fortified election processes when they believe that the guy who can fix the country is not going to get elected, you are going to start seeing revolutionary options appear or alternative systems appear. That's probably mostly going to be in the form of renewed, renewed interest in secession movements, things that we've, we've seen uh, in the past decade or, or so. Ray Dalio, when he, Ray Dalio has said repeatedly going all the way back to roughly 2017 or so that, American society is breaking down between the capitalists and the socialists. And I think that's partially correct, but that's not, that's not the whole picture because there are many capitalists who are also globalists. American society is really breaking down between old America and new America. There's old America, capitalist, various flavors of Christian, at least, you know, uh, some form of Christian religion a belief in limited government, and also a very strong moral culture. Old America. Old America, I think, is segments of old America are coming around to the idea that government needs to step in and bring some order to our culture, which is experiencing level uh, record amounts of chaos. That is typically not a limited government uh, belief. But I do, I see this on opinion websites or in media websites where they publish opinion pieces. I see this a lot on social media. I do think a good many Americans, old, you know, call them old stock Americans, are coming around to the idea that the government does need to step in and do something here to stop, stop this chaos. Maybe to implement some form of cultural reform. And, you know, I, that sounds, it sounds very scary, actually, is what it sounds. But I do see a lot more Americans coming to believe this because when we get into this is interesting. Back in two, was it twenty twenty? You know, George Soros even said we are in a revolutionary environment in this country, and as more Americans see that, they're probably going to support more extreme measures to stop that or to counter that. The right in this instance is the counter revolutionary side. That's old America. The second part is new America. And this is explained very well by this March 2019 foreign affairs issue, which I read and is a fantastic issue of foreign affairs. It was put out by the Council on Foreign Relations. I've been a subscriber for many years. This is probably the best issue I've ever read in terms of how informative it is regarding how these people see the country. This issue starts off with an article entitled A New Americanism. And it's about how to reappropriate American nationalism away from the quote-unquote myth of common ancestry, which is purely a myth, 
I say that tongue in cheek. Uh, today, today it is more of a myth, more uh, more towards a myth, uh, and towards the ideals of Frederick Dr- Frederick Douglass. Here's what Frederick Douglass had to say: "Quote, I want a home where I want a home here, not only for this is just what he says. I want a home here, not only for the Negro, the mulatto, and the Latin races, but I want the Asiatic to find a home here in the United States and feel at home here, both for his sake and for ours." End quote. What does it mean for our sake? I think that is a very important question to ask here. The picture that new America sees, not all, but probably most of them, and the people who are trying to lead this revolution to topple old American ideals and institute new American ideals, see that this is a deeply troubled America that was founded by white European racists um, and is in the process of being perfected by diverse global citizenship. This is what this article is about. The second article is called The Importance of Elsewhere, and it's a reference to the battle between nationalists and globalists, the somewheres and the anywheres. The people from somewhere have roots. They have a hometown. They may even still live there. Their identity is tied probably to that, to that place, or at least to the nation where they grew up. They are not especially upwardly or geographically mobile. They may be the fourth or fifth or seventh or 10th generation to live in that area. They have well-established uh, well established lives in these places. Their families lived there for a long time. Their families are probably friends with other families who are also from that area. They have really no desire to leave. Anywheres, on the other hand, have they have a college degree and they probably left home to go, uh, to go study there and they didn't come back home. They have uh, kind of an air of superiority because they're college educated. They're cosmopolitan. They can get a job in any city in the country and feel just as at home in Chicago as they would in New York or Miami or Los Angeles. Their roots are not tied to somewhere. They can make a new home anywhere, and they're perfectly comfortable doing this. And this comes down to part of their identity, but also belonging, because they think, well, it's anywhere. Anywhere belongs to anyone, and and that's what they believe. The somewheres believe that somewhere belongs to someone. And this is the crux of the cosmopolitan argument. America, they say America owes something to every global citizen, and every global citizen is welcome here because their mere existence transcends borders. The American nationalists say, well, America owes nothing to any global citizen. This nation is our home and it belongs to us, and we want to take care of Americans first. The simplest explanation, and this has been the case for many years, The simplest explanation for our current political turmoil is that new America puts at grave risk the relevancy of old America. And this is something, you know, I used to be a little distraught over this, but we just have to understand all this stuff is cyclical. Sir John Glubb in The Fate of Empires talks about this. You get late, you know, there's this 250 year cycle, roughly 10 generations, and you get later, later on in this multi generational cycle. And those newer generations are so far past what what the founders of the of the country, the founders of that empire, had in mind. They are far separated from the values because their connection to the founding has been eroded over time because they've been introduced to new cultures and new ideas, and they became anywheres essentially. And the anywhere attitude is what's killing. Uh, is really what's what's killing the nation.
this, the old America versus new America, I think more people are realizing that this is the crux of our low intensity conflict. It was the whole reason why Donald Trump was elected. This uh, is not just old American ideals, uh, but really, I mean, Trump was a law and order candidate. And going back to Lafayette Lee's post, Trump got elected because he promised law and order. I think that's one of the major reasons why he, got, he was elected. This whole thing of law and order in old America versus new America is going to dominate future elections. And it is ultimately why we will have continuing, probably worsening, low intensity conflict in domestic and political, uh, domestic political and cultural conflict. It is a structural fault line that may even rupture into a civil war or a revolution. The second thing I, Hey, what's up, Ron? Glad you're here. Mike gets distraught. I'd pay a dollar to see that. Yeah, I do. I, I keep, you know what I do? I keep all my anger bottled up inside. All right. The second thing I want to talk about is what is the Taliban and why the Taliban is why the situation of the Taliban in the mid 90s is actually very relevant to what's happening in America right now. So with that in the background, let's talk about what happened after uh, the fall of President Najibullah in the mid 1990s. In the mid 1990s in Afghanistan, the Mujahideen and, and some of these other foreign groups had just eject, just ejected the Soviets out of Afghanistan by 1991. And what ended up happening is they there was this President Najibullah who was installed by the Soviet Union. And under President Najibullah, these warlords started taking over vast swaths of Afghanistan. And they warlorded over these areas. And the warlords were entirely out for themselves. They expropriated land and resources from, uh, from everybody, but particularly from the Pashtuns. They did un-Islamic things. That's the Taliban accused them of doing un-Islamic things. When they mediated local disputes, instead of being fair, instead of seeking justice, they would most often mediate in whatever was in their favor, however they benefited the most, i.e. they would choose sides with their friends or from that, you know, from the villager who supported the local warlord or paid, you know, essentially tithes or supported the local warlord in some other way. And the Pashtun Salas said, well, this is not fair. We do not like life. Life under the Soviets was bad. Life under the warlords is, uh, is not, is not really any better. And more than anything, the warlords took part of Afghanistan away from the tribes who had been in, in positions of power there for, I don't know, most or all of recorded history. So you had the warlords, and then on the other side, you have the Taliban. And the Taliban were a group of students, and they wanted, not only did they want a strict adherence to Islamic law, they wanted to fight the warlords and take back Afghanistan for the Pashtuns. Pashtun is the major tribe predominantly in southern Afghanistan. And that meant ejecting the local warlords, fighting the local warlords to take back over. And that's exactly what they did, especially because a lot of these warlords were foreign and they just stayed there after they ejected the Soviets and they had accrued so much power that they, they just stayed and kind of built their little fiefdoms for themselves. Well, in 1996, the Taliban marched into Kabul and they went directly to the United Nations compound where former president Najibullah was. 
And Najibullah represented the warlord system to the Taliban because the warlord system was allowed to, con- to continue under Najibullah. And they really had a lot of resentment and anger and hatred built up towards Naj- Najibullah. 1996, Taliban goes into Kabul. They rip Najibullah out of the UN compound. They castrate him and they torture him. And they drag his body through the streets of Kabul and they left his corpse there. And that's a heinous act. From their side, they probably thought it was a perfectly moral thing to do. Najibullah had injured, so injured the Pashtuns that the Taliban believed that is what Najibullah deserved. And we go back yesterday, I spent the whole show talking about tribal justice and and warlords implementing a sense of law and order in areas where there was no governance or where the government could not provide law and order. Nature abhors a vacuum. When there are no police, human beings will step up to try police themselves. It's just, it's what happens all over the world. It's a fact of life. It is the way of the world. A lot of people were very angered that the Taliban did this to Najibullah. Uh, however, it's interesting to see how the the Pashtuns viewed the Taliban. Now, not all of them were in favor of the Taliban. However, compared to the warlords, look, the Taliban were not good people. They were less bad people than the warlords who were less bad than the communists. And this is why a lot of the Pashtuns lined up in support of the Taliban because they said, well, with the Taliban, we know what we're getting. We're getting strict Islamic law. We're getting mullahs and Malawis who will mediate our disputes fairly as opposed to the warlords who are just out for themselves and mediated disputes unfairly. We know what we're getting. We're getting law and order. We're getting a predictable order, a predictable society. And that's why they supported the Taliban. The, from the Taliban perspective, the Taliban came in and they said, we are reestablishing law and order against the relative chaos of the warlords. And so the Taliban did establish, reestablish law and order and the people cheered for them. And they saw the Taliban as fair and they could adapt or tolerate this implementation of the strict religious law. The Molas and the Malawis were, were well-respected village elders. And the support of the people is part of what enabled the Taliban to take back over. And there's a very important lesson there. The people of Afghanistan, namely the Pashtuns, lined up behind the force who is imperfect and maybe even bad, but they lined up behind that force who would establish law and order. And going back to Lafayette Lee's uh, quote here, he said, quote, again, this isn't hard. Whoever convinces the public they can restore order will win. But make no mistake, as the country's problems become more existential, Americans won't hesitate to anoint a champion far outside the ranks of bitter Democrats and feckless Republicans. This is exactly what happened to the Taliban. They deposed Najibullah. They killed or ejected the warlords. They took back over and they they imposed predictable law and order. You may not like it. You may not like Sharia law. You may not like the way the Taliban did this. But from an Afghan's perspective, this was far preferable to other things that were happening. A lot of the Pashtuns, probably the majority of the Pashtuns, believed that this was a step up in their way of life, that life was improving under the Taliban. Life, 
actually probably got worse under the Taliban because the Taliban really ignored economic development and uh, they were just mainly concerned with implementing Sharia law and living under kind of this Islamic state. So, um, you know, I read this, I read this tweet thread from Lafayette Lee and that's, I immediately thought of how the Taliban took over Afghanistan in the mid 1990s and they did it through the support of the people who wanted law and order. And the question is, or the, the concept is, will the same thing happen in the United States of America? And I think Lafayette Lee makes kind of a compelling argument that it absolutely could. Also backed up by backed up by some history here. All right, uh, Dustin, by the way, Matthew M uh, is here with a super chat. Iowa reporting. Matthew, thank you for the support of the show. We certainly appreciate that. All right, Dustin, if you can, please uh, uh, give me some questions as you come across them. All right, government created the problem. Why would anyone expect them to solve anything? Well, A, that's a really good question. But B, it's not just government in general that created the problem. It's people in government who created the problem. And maybe there's an expectation that if you take the crooks out of government, you can have a functioning limited government that can restore some semblance of liberty or at least a perception of, of freedom and liberty back to the people who live here. And I'm not saying I'm not saying that the system will be perfect. I'm not even saying that the new system will be, will be better than the old system because historically it's not better than the old system. But a girl can dream. All right, next question. Could a Chinese, oh boy, could a Chinese invasion of Taiwan collapse the CCP due to high casualty rates uh, because of their one-child policy? Yeah, this is, you know, Peter Zeon talks a lot about uh, how China's in really bad shape because they have, uh, their demographics are inverse. They have a lot of old people, not a lot of young people. And this is one thing I've also said over on the Ford Observer High side is that China wants to avoid a war, not only because they're not 100% sure they could win. If they're 100% sure they could win, I think they probably would have done it by now. But number two, uh, they they cannot afford to kill off a lot of young people in a major military conflict because they do absolute, they will, they eventually will suffer demographic collapse. By the way, Peter Zeon has, Zeon has a new book that just came out this week and uh, I have not read it yet, but I will be reading it. It's called The the End of the World is Just the Beginning or something like that. All right. Yeah, good question. Um, I, by the way, I'm happy to take questions. Geopolitical stuff, especially China. I really want Max here to help discuss China because it's just not my job. Uh, Max is our Indo-Pacific guy over at Ford Observer. By the way, um, I'm we're kind of shifting fire over at Ford Observer. Our early warning report has kind of been rebalanced. We're covering about 75% domestic things, so things that are happening in this country, especially food and agriculture, energy, uh, governance, politics, rule of law, low-intensity conflict, especially uh, far-left and far-right groups, extremist groups, and uh, and uh, like today on Thursday, we do a weekly economic outlook, talking about where we think the economy is headed and uh, we've had a pretty good track record so far. Uh, actually, we've had a very good track record so far. If you want to get access to that, it comes out every morning. You can do that at forwardobserver.com slash subscribe. All right, Dustin, let is, let's um, 
get the next question here, please, sir. Now that the Republic, by the way, well-armed Corgi, $20 super chat. Thank you, sir. Now that the Republic has been fundamentally strangled to death by the new Americans and their multicultural democracy with its fundamental unfairness and chaos, can the system be saved at all? Or will, we ha will it have to be replaced? I'm not going to answer, can the system be saved? I am going to answer, how long until the system collapses and we can start a new system? I don't think that I don't think that the system necessarily has, you, know, you don't have to induce a collapse of the system. The, class of, the system is collapsing on itself. The question is, how long is that going to take? And if we follow the GLUB cycle of roughly 250 years or 10 generations, we, you know, there's kind of a disagreement here, and I'll just explain the two sides. You know, one agreement says, okay, it's 250 years from 1776. It's when the country was founded. 250 years from then puts us at 2000, uh, what, 2026 coming up. 250 years, yeah. I'm not a mathematician, but I'm pretty sure that's right. So roughly four years away from 250 years, which is, according to GLUB, the average life cycle, average lifespan of an empire. And it's not just, it's not just GLUB. There's another one, uh, another independent researcher who arrived at, about 265 years. That was his average. And actually, Peter Turchin describes that in one of his books uh, pretty good. So I just see a lot of commonalities in this kind of 250 to 265 year time span. I'm willing to say that the American empire didn't start till the 18, maybe as, as late as the 1820s with the Monroe Doctrine, where we actively kept European powers out of the Western Hemisphere. That was the policy. And uh, 1820... Plus 250 is, I don't know, 2070 or something like that. I don't know. Or, I don't know, whatever it is. So I think we have, I think we have some, some period uh, of time. I expect it within my lifetime. I really do expect it in the next 20 years because what's happening is not only do you have an empire in decline, but one of the, there are two things right now, or maybe three things right now that are holding up the American empire that to some degree are still functioning. The first is the first is our military, which I ha have some questions about. The second thing that's holding up the American empire right now is our monetary relative mon monetary stability. That is probably that's coming under duress. It absolutely will to a higher degree in the future. Right now, I don't think it's imminent. Eventually, the United States will probably not, quote-unquote, lose global reserve status. What's probably going to happen is it's slowly displaced as the only world reserve currency. That really is the best outcome for the dollar, is, uh, is that it shares, it shares the stage with some other currency. People keep talking about the renminbi, the Chinese yuan, that it's going to completely replace the dollar. It's not going to replace the dollar. China's capital markets, their credit, first of all, they don't have capital markets large enough to support a global reserve currency, number one. Number two, they're not transparent enough to support a global reserve currency. And uh, three, their credit markets are not large enough. I mean, we're talking about trillions of dollars in global trade settled in the U.S. dollar. The, the, the central bank, uh, the People's Bank of China and the, the renminbi cannot 
settle trillions, cannot settle multi-trillions of dollars in global trade. So I doubt China actually does it. I, I doubt China is able to do it. But at any rate, look, JP Morgan did this roughly 400, maybe even 600 year study. Yeah, actually six, probably 600 year study of global world reserve currencies. And they found the average lifespan is somewhere between 80 to 110 years. So we go back to Bretton Woods and was it 44? You add 80, it's 2000, uh, 2044, something like that. So uh, probably within, within my lifetime, the United States will be, if not replaced, at least displaced as the world reserve currency. Well, that's a, that's a major pillar that's propping up the American empire right now, which is another reason why I think eventually probably in the next 20 to 40 years, the American empire is going to collapse and it maybe could happen sooner than that. All right. So, you know, can it be saved? I don't know. I think it's going to collapse before it could be saved anyway. That's, that's kind of the bottom line. Thanks. Good question. Thanks for the question. If our government fails and we follow the way of Afghanistan and other third world countries, do you think we'll rise as warlords? Or who do you think? Well, luckily in the United States, we have these things called states. And I think a lot of state governments are probably going to be in a great position to fill the power vacuum. We, you know, this is kind of more in the realm of prepper fiction, but let's just think through this for the sake of thinking through it. You know, there, there could be regions, groups of states who say, okay, you know, we're going to constitute a new country or, you know, I tell you another option here is what the Kurds have. The, the, the Kurdistan regional government, they have an autonomous government. They exist inside Afghanistan or excuse me. They exist. They exist inside Iraq, Northern Iraq, but they have their own government and they're autonomous away from the Iraqi government. Now there still are some things that that the Iraqi government can control, but for the most part, the Kurds are left to govern themselves. And is that a potential scenario for the United States, for some States to become autonomous regional governments and just have way less federal control, maybe minimal, maybe zero federal control but still be in kind of the United, what we call today, the United States, possibly. That's a good question. By the way, um, Ron, Ron is here. Um, Ron says at, at the macro level, your Afghan comparison is okay, but Afghanistan has numerous ethnic groups. Um, the continued civil war that happened with the departure of the Soviets. Yeah. So Ron, let's actually maybe have you on the show to talk about this. I spent two years in Afghanistan, but I'm I'm far from an Afghan historian. Uh, what I talked about today is uh, my the kind of macro level understanding of what happened after the the fall of the Soviets and what enabled the Taliban to take over. I think factually pretty accurate, but I would love to have a Q and A session with you. Uh, you may have even spent a lot more time in Afghanistan than me. Uh, by the way, Ron's a former agency, uh, I think operations officer. So that'd be an interesting discussion. I would love to have you on because really I got to start having my friends on this show to uh for q a all right uh we'll do a couple other questions here uh let's see all right andrew thank you for wow big super chat thanks i we i really appreciate that the new age of civilization states with return to customs culture and beliefs may be the new thing and america returns to i don't see this happening without the current system breaking down yeah, that's a good comment. Another great book that I talk about from time to time is The Sovereign Individual, and that is the concept of the 
enclaves, like the return of city states. And I think this is maybe what Andrew's talking about, these civilization states. And could we have city states or something that resembles city states or enclaves inside the United States? Yeah, absolutely. I think we could. Uh, Cape Town VA says all that has a beginning has an end. Re salty. I, I very much agree with that. Everything that has a beginning has an end. Yeah, Ron said he did 12 deployments to Afghanistan, or maybe in general, but maybe also in Afghanistan. All right. All right, so we'll get Ron on the show. We'll talk about Afghanistan. And also, he thinks a, a Kurdish scenario of an autonomous regional government in the United States, he says, absolutely not. We'll definitely dig into that and talk about it. I would be interested to hearing uh, that perspective. All right, uh, Dustin, are there any other questions? We'll maybe do one more question and then we'll hop off. By the way, tomorrow, um, books to go purchase before we can't. Uh, man, that's a, that's a good question. I would imagine that books on, I mean, this is just kind of pulling this out of thin air, but banning AR-15s or banning, you know, other things, I don't think it's going to be far enough in a, an authoritarian state. They're going to have to start banning certain knowledge. And so I think a lot, maybe potentially, even though they're everywhere and you can find them online in a lot of places, uh, maybe some of these army or military FMs may become restricted. Uh, some of these manuals and other books may become verboten. You know, as far as print books, I don't know. I think all the good, all the good books that I'm, I'm reading or have read on low intensity conflict and how to win low intensity conflict, I'm doing book summaries of, and I'll announce the gray zone study group here uh, coming up. Um, okay, last question here. What what's your hat patch say? It says reconnaissance surveillance company, uh, recon circo. They're a uh, I don't mean this in a pejorative way, but they're like a vet bro company. Uh, but solid dudes as far as I can tell. And I think Recon Circo, S-U-R-C-O.com, ReconCirco.com is their website. And eventually I'll have a gray zone activity or Ford, Ford Observer hat made up and I'll start, I'll stop wearing other people's hats. All right. All right, gang, with that, thanks so much for joining me here today. I'll be back on the show. Tomorrow is Open Line Friday, another show completely dedicated to answering your questions. And uh, next week, i got to start scheduling some guests for the show next week. All right, tomorrow, 2 p.m. Central Time, I'll be back here answering your questions. If you're over on Patreon, shoot me your questions. I I really want to answer your questions as general or as specific as you want about these things. Let's remember kind of my wheelhouse, intelligence, security, DIY, intelligence, building networks, intelligence gathering, things like that. And with that, we'll see you tomorrow, 2 p.m. Central. Until then, be well and stay out front.